Let's open our Bibles to uh, Romans 14. Romans chapter 14. Uh, This morning we're going to look probably no further than uh, the first 12 verses. So let's stand together as I read God's word and then we'll look at this over the next hour. Paul writes to the church in Rome made up of Jews and Gentiles who are one in Christ. And he writes, verse 1, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. This is God's word for God's people. You may be seated. You have an outline, you kind of write your thoughts down as we move through this. Uh, This is the book of Romans. This is Paul's magnum opus providing the incredible exposition of God's gospel. The Christian gospel. Which is namely, the the only way to be saved from sin and hell. And as such, the only way to the one true God. There are not many roads to God. God is not a hub and religion and other aspects or beliefs are spokes that get to God. There's one way, there is one mediator between God and man and that is the God-man, Christ Jesus. That's the gospel. He is the gospel. It is life through his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So having received the faith that saves having received this faith that justifies, faith that trusts and believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, professing him and him alone as Lord, sinners are therefore saved by grace. Unmerited favor. Now, the first 11 chapters of Romans define for us the glorious doctrines of grace. That's the truth conveyed in the first 11 chapters. We spent a year in that. And hopefully we have that in our hearts and in our minds. Because beginning in chapter 12 in verse 1, Paul makes a turn into the 
ethical application of the gospel. In other words, those who are saved by grace are also being shaped by grace. That is, all those who have placed their faith and trust in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ will indeed demonstrate the meaning and significance of that gospel. They will express the power of his gospel in and through their very lives. I mean, they must. For you either have the Spirit of God or you do not. There's two camps in the world. Believers and unbelievers. No in-betweeners. You are in Christ or you're out of Christ. You're either born again or you've only been born once and must be born again. What Paul focuses in on, as we've seen thus far, is regarding most specifically with how Christians are to be devoted to, how they are to react and respond to one another. And we saw that in chapter 12, verses 9 through 13. Paul goes on to provide instructions for our relationship with governing authorities. Chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. And then in addition to that, how we are to relate to all people in general who are referred to in Scripture as our neighbor. Chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. So you could really call Romans chapter 12 and 13 as God's righteousness displayed in everyday life. The righteousness of God in Christ through his people. Now, here in chapter 14, Paul continues on in much the same vein, right down through chapter 15 and verse 13, providing us another vivid example of what a loving Christian person looks like with regard to his brothers and sisters in Christ. How we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, how are Christians, okay, here's the question, how are Christians who are more mature in the faith to get along with Christians who are less mature in the faith? You know, in in areas where there's differences with regard to, to the sense of right and wrong. Certain convictions relating to, you know, certain opinions or, or views about matters spiritual, ethical, ceremonial, or devotional. Are you with me? How is life in the body to go on when there are differences in these areas? Because there are. There simply are, and they will be. We're not talking about differences in, 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 in views of the gospel itself, Okay? We're not talking about differences over fundamental matters of the faith. We're not talking about different views with regard to the the, the major doctrines and clear commands of Scripture that have to do with the gospel or that are a product of the gospel. He's not talking about that. Paul is clear in all his writings about that. There's to be no flexibility with regard to the gospel. None. Well, Jesus is true for me, but he's not true for everybody. You have a doctrinal problem, if you believe that, that needs to be straightened out. It's not talking about that. There's to be no leeway with regard to the fundamental teachings of the faith. There's to be no leeway with regard to unrepentant sin within the body of Christ. It's to be purged out. This we know. Paul is clear. But what about other types of spiritual and ethical differences of conscience 
regarding various matters that arise in the Christian life. That is the topic of the text this morning. Now, as we study the text that is before us, I want you to notice that there's two groups mentioned. The issues involved, and the result of which is disharmony. Paul wants to dismantle disharmony within the body. The two groups, quite simply, are the weak and the strong. The two groups are the weak and the strong. The issues have to do with food, wine, and religious days. Notice verse 2. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than the other while another esteems all days alike. Verse 21, it's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Those are the issues. Okay, so let's take a look at the two groups. Right here in verse 1. As for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Now, this title, the weak Obviously, was, which is in contrast to the strong, 15, chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to simply please ourselves, but the goal is to build the weak up. So the weak is in contrast to the strong. And we'll look at the differences as we move through this. But the title of the weak was certainly not coined by the weak. The strong would have coined that term, and Paul uses that term. So he is making a distinction between the weak and the strong. Because the weak in this context most certainly would have thought themselves as more pious or, i.e., more strong in the faith. But that's not the case, as we shall see. Because they abstained from certain activities and, and, and religiously acknowledged certain traditions or high days or specific liturgical styles, they no doubt thought of themselves as stronger in the faith, when in reality they were the weak. So weak in faith is not a reference to someone whose faith in Christ is weak. That's not the context. You know, in the sense that they're barely trusting in Christ, you know, and, and hanging on by just a thread. It doesn't mean that. Nor does it mean weak in a good sense, meaning we know that Christ is our only strength. We have nothing in and of ourselves that can save ourselves. He's not referring to that. As a matter of fact, once after I prayed for the church uh, in context to this, Romans 14, the weak and the strong, uh, this brother, I think he was reading some book, this is some time ago, and he was just starting to understand his justification, but he was really confused about sanctification. And he says, man, I don't know about you, man, but, man, I'm always weak. You know, I'm always weak in the Lord. And I said, you know, I'm in desperate need of God's grace. Well, of course, I agree with that. But that's not what he's talking about. We're all weak, amen? And we need Christ in that sense. But this is referring to weak faith of someone who cannot, a faith that cannot sustain a believer with regard to certain kinds of conduct. With regard to certain kinds of, of conduct. Not conduct clearly forbidden in Scripture. He's not talking about that. Not fornication or sorcery or idolatry or strife or dissension. Those things are obvious. That's sin. But 
certain conduct that's not forbidden in Scripture. Certain conduct that's not forbidden in Scripture. So the weak here is not referring to one who's easily overcome by temptation. That's not the context. But, but someone who has a weak, sensitive conscience. He's a true believer, that he's full of indecision, full of certain scruples. He's not lacking self-control. But he's lacking liberty of conscience. Liberty of conscience. Are you with me, dear beloved? He or she does not understand that when the meaning of justification by faith is understood and embraced, questions with regard to the use of meat or wine or special days all becomes irrelevant. It all becomes irrelevant. So the person whose faith is weak is someone who feels that to engage in certain activities, to engage in certain conduct, is a sin, even though that activity or that conduct is not clearly expressed or forbidden in Scripture. Or perhaps they feel obligated to participate in, in one kind of meticulous, liturgical, or liturgical order, which is the only way is if they do this, this, and this, that they, can, that they can have a clear conscience. Are you with me? Now, nevertheless, Paul says you're going to have those kind of people with you. And despite the mistaken belief of their weakness in faith, they are to be accepted. They're not to be rejected. The goal is not to push them out. The goal is to embrace them and build them up to a strong faith. At the same time, the weak are not to be allowed to force the strong as though they're weak. Okay? This is what Paul's after here. Now, it's not hard to imagine that within this church, the church in Rome, made up of Jews and Gentiles, that the old habits of being a Jew and the old habits, traditional habits of being Gentile, were no, no doubt certain habits that died a hard death. Do we not have that in our own lives? Certain habits that die a hard death. So this is what was going on in the church. So Paul is concerned that such habits might divide the Roman congregation, as they typically do. They typically always have. So the the issue here is not the nature of the gospel, but how people who all do truly believe in the gospel are to relate to one another with regard to weaknesses and strengths, certain convictions within. So Paul goes on, he instructs those who are strong not to despise, not to browbeat, or not to bully the weak. We ought not to bully the weak. Oh, come on, you're being legalistic. Don't bully them. We give them a chance to grow. In other words, when someone is still hung up or or misunderstand Christian liberty because they have not reached a certain point of maturity in their thinking, the strong mustn't belittle them. They must not ride roughshod over them. That's the instruction. So this clause here, notice, not to quarrel over opinions, it means something like this. 
Follow this. Welcome the weak without attempting to settle doubtful points. There's some things, as we shall see, which are worth debating. In some things, you don't even exhaust any energy to debate, as we shall see. So the goal of the strong is not to win the argument or boast about their being strong and having a strong conscience, not being convicted about things that we really need not to be convicted about, but the goal should be to build up the weak to their strong level. We see that in chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Now, on the other end of this matter, it is also a relief, at least for me, to see that Paul doesn't say that everybody's opinion matters. Because guess what? Not everybody's opinion matters. We all have our opinions. Amen? Within the church of Jesus Christ, not every opinion matters. There are two people groups, the strong and the weak. Welcome the weak brother, he says. And on the other end, do not quarrel. When the weak comes with their opinions, they don't need to be heard every time. And this is a mistake that many pastors in our day make. Some pastors mistakenly think that since a good portion of believers within the church are are, are immature and full of these kinds of opinions, they therefore determine the church's agenda. Oh, you don't do that. You never do that. One of the dangers within the church, then and now, especially in our day, is that the agenda of the immature becomes the predominant agenda of the church. That will sidetrack a congregation. Some in our day adhere to a philosophy of ministry that teaches at an eighth grade level. I was told when I preached at this church in Africa, preach at an 8th grade level. I said, man, I'm not going down. I'm bringing them up. (laughs) Amen? So the more mature mature believers in the body, if you adhere to that philosophy, philosophy, become victims of a junior high milk-fed teaching level. We don't do that. They'll catch up. So you've got to bring them up. And if you want to succumb to that mindset of immaturity, then you constantly, you continually have to be entertaining the masses. And biblical exposition like this, an explanation like this, will be boredom for them. The hope is they come along. If they can't hack it, then they perhaps need to leave. Amen? That's the way it is. So the the strong must accept the weak. They must be given the space and the grace to grow by those that are strong. But to hit the brakes every time an opinion arises among the weak or some issue, that will hurt the body as a whole. That's the principle we see. Now, there are indeed certain issues that need to be debated within the church. We need to discuss doctrinal issues. There are certain hills to die on. Within the church. Amen? The doctrine of justification by faith alone is a hill to die on within the church. Amen? The doctrine of of grace alone and Christ alone is a hill to die on. What you believe about eschatology 
things regarding the second coming of Christ, is, I believe, a very important matter, but is not a hill to die on. If you believe there's a secret rapture, I'm not going to die on that hill, but I will show you, I believe through Scripture, that it doesn't teach that. The only thing we're waiting for is the glorious second coming of Jesus Christ. But it's not a hill to die on. I don't need to slay someone on that hill. (laughs) And, you know, and I don't want to be stabbed on that hill either, but we can all grow. But with regard to personal opinions, for instance, eating habits, perhaps you're a, a passionate vegan. You're a passionate vegetarian. Or you refuse to eat grains because it's not good for the temple. Or I only eat fish because they don't have any feelings. (laughs) To quote a certain rock star of the past. Or we shall not have artificial sweetener at the coffee station. It's not good for the temple. Those are issues that you all and we all need to keep to ourselves. That's the principle. Don't allow the church to be sidelined by that kind of nonsense, is what Paul is saying. Notice, he says, except the one who's weak in faith and who are given to these kind of opinions, but not for the purpose of quarreling over his opinions. Do we get it? This isn't a rebuke to this body, but this is this where we are in the text. I've never heard any of that kind of argumentation within the church about sweeteners or any of that nonsense. But I know certain pastors who have had to deal with that nonsense. So praise God and good for you that you don't. Now, just as the strong must not reject those who are weak in conscience, that's clear, this is a two-way street. And again, the principle, on the other hand, the weak cannot insist that the strong give up their freedoms. They don't need to look down as like, oh, you participate in that? You must not be pious. (laughs) There then are your two groups. The strong and the weak. Context now. Issues. They're made clear in verses 2 through 4. Notice verse 2. Paul writes, One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. So Paul now provides this dietary illustration that was a very real challenge in that day for this church, and many other churches for that matter, because they were made up of Jews and Gentiles. Who would have had issues with eating in that day? The Jews. No doubt about it. They come from differing backgrounds. All kinds of traditional values in the minds of both groups. The strong in faith knew they were free in Christ. They would eat anything. They had no problem eating a pig for lunch. Including foods that would have been deemed unclean, like a pig. They had no problem eating that. They allowed no religious restrictions to limit their diet. They were strong in the faith. They knew Christ fulfilled all those Old Testament signs and symbols. Christ fulfilled it all. The weak person would eat only vegetables. They would abstain from meat because they would consider many foods as still being 
unclean. Now, the weak one to whom Paul refers to is a vegetarian here, but keep in mind, his vegetarianism was for religious and not dietary purposes. If you're a vegetarian, hey, more power to you, man. Just don't make it a religious activity within the church. You're not more pious than anyone else sitting next to you who loves to eat ham sandwiches like myself. (laughs) Or my steak, medium rare. (laughs) Amen, brother. Now, to have this kind of mindset, which is going on this day, is a a byproduct of an inadequate understanding of the Word of God, number one, tied together with an unenlightened, oversensitized conscience. That's a bad recipe. Which oftentimes leads people to religious formulas or religious formalities that end up elevating theological and church tradition above and beyond the Word of God. It happens to this day. Maybe not the meat issue, but certain traditions and and theological phrases that trump the authority of the Word of God. Very dangerous. Now, this is a noticeable reality in in, in certain Protestant denominations in our very day, where they begin to look Catholic. Their weak conscience can only be temporarily appeased by certain religious activity, whether it's certain acts of self-denial, such as, you know, food and drink, or major indulgences to religious activity. Unless they perform these things or neglect to participate or partake of these things is the only way that their conscience can be appeased. It's never Christ alone and the Holy Spirit who dwells within them. It's about what they don't do and do. They require perhaps heavy, heavy doses, doses, and I know people like this, I grew up around people like this, they, they require a heavy dose of liturgical citation unless they do the same thing every Sunday, saying the same thing at the same time in exactly the same way, their conscience is never clear. Religious activity. You know, there's some Protestants who mistakenly see the Lord's Supper as a kind of infused grace. A kind of infused grace. I grew up in Reformed circles, so I would hear the term, the Lord's table is a means of grace. Now, I've always been a critical thinker. and I go, well, let me think through this. A means provides an end. A means of grace. It's a way to reach a goal. I never use the term means of grace. I use the term, the Lord's table is an extension of grace. I know what some mean by that term, but others don't. So I don't use the term. The Lord's table is an extension of God's already eternal, once and for all, gift of what? Grace. We come to the Lord's table and we participate in remembering his broken body and his shed blood, which is the very grace of God. 
if you're banking on taking the Lord's Supper in order to receive his grace, you need to change your thinking. If you're in Christ, you've received all the grace you need to be saved. This is the grace also in which we stand daily. And this table is the extension of that grace once and all for provided, provided for through Jesus Christ. Now back here in Romans 14, those referred to as weak in the faith were most certainly true Christians, no doubt, and they were from a Jewish background, no doubt. And imagine this, instilled within them from childhood was this strong affection for Old Testament law affecting what they ate. We can understand something of this, amen? So for them, it would feel, keyword feel, it would feel wrong for them to open the kitchen cupboard and see spam and bacon bits on the shelf. It would feel wrong. Are you with me? Bacon bits on salad are just scrumptious. Bacon makes everything taste better. Bacon is better. That's right, sister. Now, it's also important to note that this particular group did not regard abstinence from certain foods as necessary for salvation. If that were the, you know, like those in Galatia did, the Judaizers of Galatia. If that were the case, Paul most certainly would have rebuked them for that. But he doesn't rebuke them for that. They're truly saved, they're in Christ, they were simply immature and hadn't yet come to terms with the fact that Jesus had made all foods clean. Remember the vision of Peter? In order for Peter to understand that Jew and Gentile are one, he gives them a vision of food, because food divides cultures. You go to Africa and you have to eat things you just don't eat here. Right? In meat that probably, you know, wasn't, you know, USDA choice. <laughs> I think they killed the cow in the morning and feed it to you at lunch. You know, I did taste something bad when I took a bite out of that second dose of spaghetti meat. And, you know, I, I, and I didn't feel good afterwards. There's certain, food divides culturally. This, that's what was going on here. So it would feel wrong for them to do this. You know, the, the vision that God gave Peter in Acts 10 was also previewed. That truth was previewed back in the Gospels. In Mark chapter 7, listen to this. Jesus said, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Did you know that? Since it enters not his heart but his stomach, it's expelled. Thus, Mark says, he declared all foods clean. Before the vision of Peter. Because he's the fulfillment of all these things. He's the fulfillment of the law. So there would have been this, no doubt, enormous emotional adjustment for these Jews who were now in Christ. And this was much deeper, beloved, than just simply adopting it in your head. Now, here's a principle for us. You're in a church like this, you learn doctrine, because doctrine's important. You learn deep doctrine, because the doctrine of, say, propitiation is vitally important if you want to really grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Propitiation is a biblical term that means God's wrath was satisfied in his son when he crushed his son. 
Propitiation was made for those who believe. Therefore, you will never face the wrath of God because of sin. Jesus absorbed it all. Propitiation. It's important that we know this. But this is a reminder for us that there are certain doctrines that some people have a more difficult time not only acknowledging, but embracing. The doctrine of predestination, which is biblical. The doctrine of unconditional election, which is biblical. The doctrine of limited atonement, which is biblical. It's not hard to understand, but perhaps it may be hard to what? Huh? Accept. It makes it no less true. But it was hard for them to accept. So we have to understand our, 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 our brothers or sisters who are weak in doctrine. We have to give them room to understand this, to embrace this, not merely in their head. Amen? So that they can be fully convinced in their own what? Minds. This is all part of the growth process for the body of Christ. That's why it's important when you're in a church and you're starting to learn truths you've never learned before because you've been under entertainment. Don't split. Sit it out in order to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Amen? Verse 3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. For the mature... If you're mature, and these mature people in Christ in this day need not make any apologies for enjoying their ham sandwich. Now, what they didn't want to do is take their ham sandwich in front of a weak believer and go, Mmm, isn't it great that we're free in Christ to eat all foods, brother? No, that's what you don't do. But at the same time, he did not need to make an apology. Brother, I'm so sorry, but you know, my wife bought this ham and it's delicious. Honey baked, and I'm sorry, but you know, I'm gonna part, I'll partake in the corner. No. No. And at the same time, for those who are weak, there need not be an attitude of scorn towards those who partake. See the principle? See, the gospel's not at stake here. The gospel is not at stake, so there needs to be no argument. For such matters. When the gospel is at stake, bring it. Amen? Then it's time for debate. Verse 4 Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Certain behaviors in the Christian life are non negotiable. God is clear on those matters. Amen? We know what those are. It's obvious. There are some things, certain behaviors, that are negotiable. What may be, in this case, what may be sin for you is not sin for your brother or sister. Paul gave this example in 1 Corinthians. In chapter 8, he writes to the Corinth church, and, and he addresses issues of meat that had been offered to idols within the walls of pagan temples. You remember the story? where an animal would be sacrificed to a pagan god in the morning, and then in order to maintain the enterprise, in the afternoon, after the religious observance was over, they'd sell the meat on the street, apparently at a discount. Right? You get it? You get the picture? So the question was, 
to the Corinthians, can a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ eat that meat that was sacrificed to an idol without sinning? Paul believed that he most certainly could eat it with a clear conscience. But others could not. Other believers were gripped by their conscience because perhaps they came out of that religious system and for them to even conceive of eating meat that was sacrificed to that idol and everything that went on in those pagan temples, he could not fathom partaking of that meat. So for him it would be sin. But not for Paul. The strong would say, idols are dumb. Idols are as dumb as the people who make them. And it means nothing to me. The meat is good. It's on sale. I'll buy it. I'll take it home. And I'll make my medium rare steak. No conscience conviction upon me whatsoever. But he goes on to say, in addressing Christian liberty with regard to that, if your brother is convicted by that, don't eat in front of him for the sake of your brother. And don't cause your brother to sin, to stumble. And we're going to talk about that next time, Lord willing. Causing brothers to stumble. Especially in our culture with regard to like drinking. Causing a brother to stumble. So Paul's emphasis here in Romans 14 is very simple. Neither group is to look down on the other because both groups are justified sinners equally accepted by God. They're in Christ who declares them as what? Righteous. So in essence, what Paul really has to say here, beloved, with issues like this is this. It's very simple, and this is for all of us. Mind your own business. Regarding issues like this, mind your own business. Why should I be worrying about what other people eat? To be preoccupied with the business of others and what they eat is a sure sign of the pervasiveness of the sin that is still in us. Or the weak making judgments on those who are strong. Ah, hmm. You don't really revere the Lord, do you? See, it goes both ways. Why should I care if someone's a vegetarian? I can't fathom being a vegetarian. Never will be a vegetarian. Can't imagine being a vegetarian, but God bless those who are. May the Lord bless you. Amen? As long as they don't insist that being a vegetarian is necessary in order to be justified by God, there's not a problem. But as soon as they bring it into the faith, then it becomes a problem. That's what he's after. Notice in verse 4 this, this emphatic statement to both the weak and the strong. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls and will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Make him stand. And what he's saying is that since God justifies sinners based upon the blood and the righteousness of Jesus Christ, all, all believers in Christ, the weak and the strong, will be regarded as righteous on the last day because they are. They already are. So stop judging the motivation of one another here and now. You're justified. No way can the weak sever the strong from Christ because of what they eat. 
No way can the strong sever their relationship with Christ because they abstain. We're one in Christ. Because of Christ. That was one issue. It was a food issue. The second issue in Romans 14 was with regard to the religious calendar. Okay? The weak considered some days more sacred than others, whereas the strong said, every day is equal, man. It's all for the glory of God. Okay? Notice. Verse 5. One person esteems one day is better than another. While another esteems all days alike, each one should be fully convinced where? In his own mind. For the weak, every t- in this context, every time Passover came around, it would feel wrong for them not to celebrate the Paschal meal. It would feel wrong. And being immature, they had not yet grasped the full weight of Jesus himself being the ultimate Passover Lamb. He is the Passover, baby. Jesus. Why don't we celebrate it? Because he is the Passover. He's the celebration. Every December, Jews in this day would celebrate the Feast of Lights. They would celebrate Hanukkah. And I'm sure they were, they were reminded of their grandfather. Every December. Who would, who would tell the great stories of the heroic Maccabees 200 years earlier. When Antiochus Epiphanes ruthlessly persecuted the Jews, and in spite of it, some Jews stood strong, and they refused to eat any unclean food and actually starved to death or were put to death. And then in this day, these believing Jews were convinced that everyone should celebrate the Feast of Lights or Hanukkah, especially if you're a Jewish believer. But the mature said, no, all days are the same. Christ is the fulfillment of it all. Verse 6. The one who observes the day observes it in honor to the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. Since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstain, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Now, this issue of days is much more contemporary than people may realize. Did you know that? You know, some Christians raise the question about Easter and Christmas. They'll say, did you know that those holidays are rooted in paganism? And we answer what? Well, of course they are. (laughs) Of course they are. But Christians took those days and they turned it for the glory of God. Amen? They turned it for the glory of God. I've heard Christians who try to press on other Christians, you shouldn't get a Christmas tree because that's pagan. And they cite Jeremiah 10. Listen to this. Jeremiah 10, verse 3. Customs of the people are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and work with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver. They decorate it with gold. They fasten it with a hammer and nail so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. And they cannot speak. They have to be carried for they cannot walk. If a Christian is convinced in his own mind and in his own conscience and in his own heart that he ought not to celebrate Christmas or have a Christmas tree or make gingerbread cookies or angel cookies or or Santa cookies, then if you're convinced in your mind, then don't do it. Don't do it. 
Now, I would first advise you not to use Jeremiah 10 as a proof text against Christmas trees, number one. Three principles in biblical hermeneutics, context, context, context. At the same time, don't push your conviction on me. I like Christmas trees. I like snow cookies. I like eating the reindeers off of sugar-frosted cookies. Their head, the reindeer head. If you like Christmas trees, which I do, if you like ornaments, if you want to put stockings by your fireplace, you go ahead and do so, and do so without apology to the weaker brother or sister. Do it unto the glory of God, amen? We do it for the glory of God. Do it without apology. Do it joyfully. Do it happily. Do it to the glory of God. Eat your juicy prime rib roast or your fatty ham. Eat it up. Rejoice. Don't belittle your brother whose conviction is not to have a tree. And you who don't believe in getting a tree, don't think your brother or sister is less pious than you because they have a tree. That's the principle. This is how ridiculous we can get. The church ought not to expend any energy debating issues like that. And this church never will. Ever. Well, then there's questions about the Lord's Day in our day. Today is the Lord's Day. Today is Sunday. Some people want to know, well, what things are permissible? What things are prohibited? Well, let me say this. Sunday, the Lord's Day, which today is, isn't a day infused with restrictions and restraints taken from the Mosaic Law. You know, a guy left here once. He, he began to embrace hyper-covenantalism. And, and he said that I don't speak enough about the Sabbath. And I said, with regard to what? And well, he was alluding to certain restrictions within the body. I said, I'm not going to place restrictions on the body because the Bible doesn't place restrictions on the body. We're not under some Sabbath law in order to satisfy God or appease his anger in any way whatsoever. This isn't a day of restraint where we come under the fearful threat of God's law. This is the Lord's day. And remember this, everything about the new covenant is better than the old, including the day. Everything. This is a day of rest. Not in the sense of celebrating creation as some believe it to be, if we think through this biblically, this is a day of rest in celebrating what? The new creation. Salvation in Jesus Christ. So the, the, the Lord's Day doesn't mean you're forbidden to work after church. You can't wash your car today. You can't garden today. You can't enjoy recreation today. Like when we go have a picnic, you can't throw the football. That's recreation. You can't experience any kind of entertainment, and God forbid you go to a restaurant. The Lord's Day simply means that our Lord has ordained a day, this day, the Lord's Day, for us, his people, to gather and worship and primarily focus on the glory of your salvation, the finished work of Jesus Christ. He is the Sabbath rest. He is. This is the high day for which we are privileged to participate in. Amen, brothers and sisters. And you're supposed to go to church on Sunday because you are saved by grace through faith. 
And, you know, I've always said before, you know, that's the issue with those who adopt hyper-covenantalism. They, they have a problem, and they seem not to know where things end and new things begin. Look, if you're determined in your own conscience not to cook on the Lord's Day, don't cook. If that's a conviction to you, boy, will your wife be blessed. And unless you're eating cold cuts, you're still going to have to heat it up and do some form of work. But look, if this is your conviction, praise God. But don't press it on my wife. (laughs) The woman likes to cook, and I like to eat her cooking. Amen? If you're determined not to go to restaurants on the Lord's Day, man, I'll not be one who will look down on you. If that is a conviction... And I grew up with folks who had that conviction they didn't go to restaurants. That's fine. We went to the donut shop every Sunday after church with my mom and dad. Till we were teenagers. Now listen, if, if, if you're under the conviction not to go to a restaurant, that's fine. Don't go. To do it to the glory of God. Don't block my way to in and out if I want to get... <laughs> amen? If I want to get a double-double with fries, don't block my way into the entry of in and out if you have a conviction not to watch football. No, hey, 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 see? See? I know guys who are given to to all these restrictions on Sunday with the exception of football. If that's your conviction, hey, do it to the glory of God, brother or sister. I am serious. Don't press it on somebody else. That's the principle. Amen? See, the weak had a tendency to think that they were elevated to a higher plane of spirituality, a a certain level of of, of devotedness and being deep because they abstained from certain activities. Today, there are those who boast, I only eat before the fall food. Unless it comes out of the ground or off a tree, I don't eat. That's fine. You will never convince me of that. And that's okay for you. Paul's point, we're to receive one another, right? We differ on these kind of matters. Receive one another in love and in grace. That's the point. Last week in Africa, a pastor came up to me after one of the sessions. And he said, hey, in order to be a member in our church, you have to sign a covenantal membership agreement that you will abstain from consuming any and all alcoholic beverages whatsoever. And then he asked for my opinion. (laughs) What do you think about that? And I said, I think you're dead wrong. I think you're dead wrong, brother. But then his reply was this, but alcohol can be addicting. And I said, that's true, but that's another altogether different point. Altogether different point. Just because there's the danger of drunkenness, we don't make laws of no alcohol. Just because there's the danger of gluttony, put a box of candy in front of me and it's gone and I'm a glutton. Well, we're not going to make a law against partaking of certain foods because of the fear of gluttony. Because of the danger of teeny-weeny bikini-clad women at the beach and men lusting after them, the women of the church are not going to create a knitting ministry of blindfolds for those men (laughs) 
if they wanted to go to the beach with their family, only to enjoy the breeze to keep them from looking upon women. You don't create laws like that because of weakness. What this pastor has done is he has legislated, he has made a law where and over what God has not. Are you with me? That sounds more like AA than a church, right? In AA, you have to go to this meeting, you have to do this, you can't do this, you can't. That's, look, that's, that's a religion in itself. This is Christianity. You've been set free by the blood of the Lamb. You have the Holy Spirit of God in you to mortify the flesh when it rises its head. Amen? This is a personal relationship, not a list of rules and regulations. If the Bible doesn't prohibit it, I'm not going to prohibit it. Amen? If that's your conviction, look, if a brother who believes that drinking beer and wine is a sin for him, I am not and certainly will not attempt to entice him to participate in that activity. And we will hear about that next time. Causing a brother to stumble. There's a lot of that going on today. Not here, but Christian circles that I hear about. Notice. Oh, let me tell you one story. I remember R.C. Sproul telling this story. He said, my wife and I went out to dinner with two other couples a number of years ago. He said, we sat down. And, and, what's, and what's the waitress or the waiter's job? The first thing they ask you before dinner is, can I start you off with a, with a drink, with a cocktail? He said, this woman was just doing her job. He said, and one of the ladies that was with us kind of stood up stiff and said, no, we're Christians. And, and Sproul said that was so embarrassing. Number one for the girl, just doing her job. He said it was an embarrassment to me. And the third thing, what kind of testimony of Christianity is that to this young girl? That Christianity is just some do's and don'ts. And that's how most Christians view it. We can do this and we can't do that. Versus we've been set free. True liberty in Christ. And true liberty as he sets you free is that you don't have to participate. That's liberty. But there's also the liberty to participate. Drunkenness is a whole other issue with regard to the drinking thing. Amen? Verse 6, the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. You know, your conscience is working aright when you can give thanks to God and, ha- and you're convinced in your own mind whether to partake or not. And you give glory to God. You give glory to God. Verse 7. For none of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are what? The Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. So the truth affirmed here in regard to the believer's use of food, his observance of days or not, is based on a much larger truth for which these believers are part. They have a greater master, 
a much greater master than doing this and not doing that. Or, or judging another for doing this or judging another for not doing that. We serve a greater master. Notice verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of who? Of himself, not of his brother. You're not going to give an account for what I do and don't do when you stand before Jesus. You will give an account for yourself. And that's context as believers. So Paul sums up the matter and he says this, rather than spending time sitting on a judgment seat and and judging your brother or sister in these certain areas where there's freedom, get off the seat because in the end you won't be sitting there. Jesus will be. And you'll be the one standing. (laughs) Do we get the picture? Now, does this rule out all judgment or discretion or discrimination within the body of Christ? No, of course not. If it did, we could never carry out the instructions for church discipline in Matthew 18. If your brother sins to him, you go to him, hoping to win your brother. If he doesn't, you're making a judgment. He hasn't repented. You take two or three. If you win your brother, you won your brother, let it be. If he doesn't repent, tell it to the church. You're making a judgment. He hasn't repented of this sin or of these sins. So this doesn't rule out, this isn't a wash for all discrimination and judgment, not judging one's heart, but judging actions. This is a a matter of judging one's motivation for those things in which one is free to do or not to do. Now, let's not overlook this. Verses 10 to 13. For Paul, notice this, the final judgment for which we will stand, which is the judgment seat of Christ. Don't confuse the judgment seat of Christ with the white throne judgment. Who will be at the white throne judgment? All rejectors of Christ. You and Christ will not be at the great white throne judgment. You will be at the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus Christ, where where rewards are given out. And the motivations of heart are brought to the table. There's many men who have very large ministries all over the world. It will be revealed that their motivation was money. I don't know who they are. Jesus does. And some of it, it will be burned up. And what does the scripture say? They will suffer loss. Not loss of salvation. Loss of reward. Whatever that looks like. There will be a day of judgment, Paul says. There will be a day of judgment. And this is good motivation for us. Now, you may say, or you've heard people say, Christians say, that to teach anything but grace is a motivation for Christian living. We're in the danger of falling into a form of works righteousness. You know what that is? That reasoning? That's nonsense. Why is it nonsense? Because look at what Paul says. That's not how he views it. Amen? Amen. Do we see this? In this passage, Paul is grounding our motivation in the certainty of God's final judgment for those who are in Christ. That's a good motivation. See, grace undergirds everything, beloved. And if we don't get that in the first 11 chapters, we don't get grace. 
That's why he spends so much time driving the point of grace home to the believer. But that reality of grace does not set aside these other conditions in the Christian life, and that's what he's driving us towards. Be motivated not to have disdain for your brother. Be motivated not to judge your brother in their freedoms because you yourself will stand before God at the judgment seat. That's good motivation. And the only reason you're going to be at the judgment seat is because you've been graced to believe in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. That's why you won't be at the great white throne judgment. So it's all grace, baby. It's all grace. Good motivation. We may have a tendency, to be, a tendency to be too quick to judge the weaknesses of some or the liberties of some. And we need to remember that we will stand before the seat. We won't be sitting in it. Amen? I want to close with this. The world watches the church. The world observes you and observes me. If they know we're in Christ, they're watching. Don't think they're not. Because they are. Imagine the world observing the church, arguing over matters of days and feasts and what they should eat and what they shouldn't eat, what they should celebrate and what they ought not to celebrate. Would that be ridiculous? That would be a ridiculous testimony. You know, each, each group comes with their list. Nothing of which has to do with the gospel, because the gospel, as we will learn, is not about eating and drinking. Amen? The gospel's not about eating and drinking. You know, imagine vegans or vegeta- vegetarians creating a list of foods deemed okay to eat and blacklisting those who eat meat. Would that be ridiculous? Yes. Or meat eaters mocking in deriding those who are weak who refuse to eat meat. That would be ridiculous testimony. How ridiculous for the world to witness a division like that. Or a division between Christians who drink wine or have a beer or those who abstain altogether. Terrible testimony. Division between those who acknowledge having a tree on December 25th and those who don't. Ridiculous. A division between those Christians who let their kids go trick-or-treating to gather candy. Ooh, there's one that hurts. October 31st compared to only those who only celebrate the Reformation. Amen? Ridiculous. Division between those people whose conscience is convinced to homeschool their kids and those who aren't convinced. Division there? You know there is division there within Christian people? It's ridiculous. May that not be here. All of that is nothing less than a scandal to our testimony of Jesus Christ. A scandal. Just as it was a scandal then, it is a scandal now, just a different context. So, beloved, to close... Every true believer belongs to the Lord. Not just the strong. Not just the weak. So may we live our lives before the Lord in the freedom that Christ has won for us. What he has won for us. Leave secondary matters alone. 
with regard to your brother and sister. All the while, keeping our own sanctification before our eyes, learning to mind our own business in matters such as these, because this is what pleases the Lord. Amen? This pleases the Lord, and this is the thing that builds up his church. Amen? Amen. If I went a little long today, went a little over an hour, I apologize. But I had to get this in. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We do thank you for your grace. Help us to understand your grace by being graceful. Lord, uh, where we are convicted about certain things, where our consciences are bound in certain things, uh, may those things be legitimate. May they be things in which we choose to glorify your name and where others have freedom in that area not to abstain or to participate. May we do that as unto you for your glory. And may we do so as a body of believers together as one, all for your glory, for the good of one another in the building up of the church, the bride of Christ, your Son, our Savior, It's in his name we pray. Amen.